0: Good morning. Glad to see everybody. Make your way back to your seats. Um, My name is Robert, one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And uh, along with Chris and Raymond, I want to welcome all of you here this morning, and especially those of you who are guests with us this morning. Um, As a short little business note, I just want to say thanks for being patient with us as you came in, and we're trying to find seats. Um, As Chris said, the school's having a play So there's a bunch of stuff around the walls that we had to pinch in a little bit. But in the coming month, months maybe, hopefully there's not an S on that, but in the coming month, um, if you can bear with us, we're going to try to flip the room north and south. So instead of everybody looking at me up here, you'll look at us on that back wall. And hopefully that'll let us spread the room out a little bit more and get about another 100 chairs in here. Um, We got about 300 chairs set up this morning once we added all the extra rows. And so hopefully when we can flip it, we can get about another 75 or 100 in here And so you won't have to jockey quite as much to get in and uh, stand while we sing and uh, off on the sides. But thanks for your patience this morning. We're going to try to work that out the best we can. Um, But again, in all of that, uh, it's important to remember God's graciousness towards us and allowing us to be here. Um, This place is a blessing, and we're going to do everything we can to uh, continue to maximize it and serve it to the best of our abilities. Um, So now that you're here, settled... Let me pray, and then we're going to jump back into the book of Ecclesiastes. Father, thank you again for the privilege. Let us never cease to remember that it's a privilege that we have to gather together as your people, uh, to be called by your voice, to be drawn by you, by your spirit to this place, that we could hear from your word, that we could continue to learn, to surrender to your word, That by your spirit, our souls will be transformed to reflect the character of your son, Jesus. Or that's what we want this morning. We're not after entertainment. We're not after fun and and frivolity for the sake of fun. We're after being transformed. We're after being changed into the image of our Savior. That through our lives, through our joys, through our passions, through our motivations, you would be glorified by your people. And in that, we would receive great joy as our hearts find satisfaction and meaning in you. And so we ask that in the next few minutes that we have, you do what only you can do. And that's change the spiritual taste buds of people like me. Change the spiritual taste buds of people whose hearts are much like my own, that are far too prone to want things other than you. We ask that you do this, Lord, for your name's sake, That you be made much of through this church. We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In his office, a doctor offered a diagnosis to an attractive, expensively dressed female patient. He said, there's nothing physically wrong with you. His patient was incredulous. She said, then why do I feel so awful? Why do I feel so bloated and so sluggish? Familiar? I've got a big new house, a brand new car, a new wardrobe, and I just got a big raise at work. Why am I so miserable, doctor? Isn't there some pill that you can give me to feel better? The doctor shakes his head. I'm afraid not, he replies. There's no pill for what's wrong with you. Well, what is it, doctor, she asked, alarmed and taken aback. Affluenza, he answered gravely. It's the new epidemic. It's extremely contagious. It can be cured, but not easily. Of course, the scene is an imaginary one, but the epidemic is real. A powerful virus has infected American society, threatening our wallets, our friendships, our families, our communities, and if I could add an aside here, our souls. We call this virus affluenza. Untreated, the disease can cause permanent discontent. Were you to find affluenza in the Oxford English Dictionary, the definition might be something like the following. Affluenza, a painful, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Those words begin the book Affluenza by John DeGraff, David Wan, and Thomas Naylor, printed in 1997. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the book that we have been working through over the past several weeks, Solomon is trying to help us understand the illusions, the temptations, the deceitful things that grab hold of our heart and draw our satisfaction and sense of meaning and purpose away from the one place that they can be found, in our Creator and in our Saviour. You see, we we're all wired to find meaning and satisfaction. Those things are good things, Solomon has said. The problem is, is that we seem to look for them in all the wrong places. And so the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon does a favor for us. By painful experience and in painful detail, Solomon lives out the vain illusions that, ro- that rob our hearts from real joy, real satisfaction in. And real meaning. And here's the problem we've talked about from the very beginning, and I'll mention it again, especially as we get into the text today, since you already have an idea of what we're going to talk about. Listening to Solomon is one of the most difficult things we will ever do, because our sinful hearts are prone to want to think, I would do it differently. If I were you, I would do it differently. You can't have the sum total of understanding on this whole thing. And so much of what Solomon is going to say to us hits our hearts like bullets on rocks, bounces off, shoots off everywhere. And my hope for us, my hope for myself, my hope for you, my hope for this church is that we will surrender a little bit, surrender our souls, surrender our pride, surrender our spirits to hear what God would have to say to us through Solomon this morning. Because you remember what we said from the beginning, in order to be prepared to hope, And what can truly never deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that does deceive. And this is what Solomon is doing for us in Ecclesiastes. This is what Solomon is going to do for us this morning, if we'll let him. He is going to help us lose the illusion of affluence. Lose the illusion of living for affluence. Lose the illusion of living for what we would call now upward mobility. So if you've got your Bibles... Open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some on the table out here in the foyer. You're welcome to go grab them. That's our gift for you. It doesn't bother me. You can stand up and walk out there. uh, Grab it. Take it. We're going to go through a lot of Bible this morning. We've been going slow through Ecclesiastes, and now we're going to pick up the speed. Um, A lot of it will come up on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. Um, Some of it's going to be kind of small type. I'm sorry. I couldn't get it all up there sometimes. But if you've got your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 10. And he's going to lay out his problem. He's going to lay out his proposition to us. Verse 10, Solomon's going to tell us that it's vanity. It's vanity. It's a striving after the wind for you and I to live for affluence. Verse 10, he says, he who loves money. Pay attention to that. Not he who has money. Not he who has money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth, not has wealth, we'll see in a little while, that's a gift from God. But he who loves wealth with his income, this is also vanity. Solomon's going to say, and he's going to unpack for us the rest of this morning, that it is a vain effort in life to find meaning and satisfaction in riches, wealth, or affluence. What our hearts are looking for cannot be found there. To listen to the writers of Affluenza, again, just let me give you a little bit of a picture of what he's talking about. Americans, you and I, you and I in this boat together, each spend more than $21,000 per year on consumer goods. Did you know that? Our average rate of savings has fallen from about 10% of our income in 1980 to a negative in 2000. Did you know that? Our credit card indebtedness has tripled in the 1990s. More people are filing for bankruptcy each year than graduate from college. We have twice as many shopping malls in America as we do high schools. We spend more money together on shoes, jewelry, and watches than on higher education in total. And think about how much we complain about how much college costs. We spend as much on auto maintenance as we do on all religious and nonprofit activities. 30% of Americans buy Christmas presents for their pets 11% buy them for their friends and neighbors. We spend more money for trash bags than 90 of the world's 210 countries spent on everything. 70% of Americans visit a mall each week. That's more than attend any house of worship. Think about what thing has become the image of cultural value. We work more hours than any industrialized nation on earth, yet 95% of our workers say they wish they could spend more time with their families, and a CEO now earns 470 times, 75 times as much as the average worker, a 15-fold increase since 1980. Here's the problem that both Solomon and our lives are reflecting. No matter how much you have, no matter how much you have, the love of those things always produces a desire for more. That's just it. Remember the great line when someone asked Rockefeller how much was enough? Remember that line? He said, let me think. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Why, Solomon says now, is living for affluence. Vanity. Look at verse 11. He's going to just bang out five or six reasons for us why this is vanity. It would be wise for us to listen to them. Verse 11, when our goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Why is it vanity to live for affluence, to live for stuff? Well, people are going to come and take them from you. I mean, look, Solomon is not going to drop any heavy philosophical reasoning on you for why it's vain to live for all of these things. He's going to get really simple. And one of the most clear and obvious reasons why it's ultimately vain in some sense to live for affluence is that the more you get, the more people are there to help you spend it. That's just the reality. Watch any celebrity, any athlete, any entertainer in the world today who gets any kind of contract. All of a sudden, friends and family members come crawling out of the woodwork, ready to help spend all that their work has accumulated for them, or all of their celebrity, ultimately, has accumulated for them. And you know what's hard about that? You know what's really tough about that? It makes having real relationships really difficult. We, we, we've, we realized this recently, not because we've struck gold or anything. Um, we don't do this for affluence. But we were introduced to a family just a few years older than my wife and I. Kids the same age. But millions and millions and millions of dollars separating our incomes and as we were talking two things were beginning to happen I began to realize how uncomfortable I was talking to him out of fear of thinking that he was thinking that I was only wanting to talk to him because of what he had because everybody that we know as mutual acquaintances only spend time with him because of what they have because of what they can get from that person and so all of a sudden I was uncomfortable actually spending time with him because I was thinking do you think that I'm spending time with you because you've got what I don't have and now all of a sudden you think I'm trying to use you like Other people, and do you know what was hard for him? He was thinking the same thing. Because the more you have, the more you have, the more people there are that will come and help you eat it and help you spend it. And that's frustrating. It's frustrating. Look at what else he says. Verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Why is living for affluence vanity? Well, one, affluence can actually be unhealthy for you. It can actually be unhealthy for you. Now, there's two things going on here. There's kind of a, a very surface understanding that's very true and very real. And there's a little bit of a broader understanding that Solomon's after here. You've got to remember back in, the, in this time, in, in, in ancient times, up into probably pre-industrialization times, the majority of labor done by men and women on the earth was manual labor. It was work. No computers, no desks, no fax machines, no cell phones, no email, no dishwashers, no washing machines, no microwaves, no ovens. Everything that you did was work. And so Solomon is saying one thing about those who actually work, those who actually do the labor of working, and your body's ready to sleep. Your body's ready to sleep. But those who have lived for affluence, those who have lived for their riches and for their wealth, have other people who do their work for them. They have other people who do all that labor for them, and they reap the benefits of all that labor. And what he's saying is those who actually do the work, they actually sleep better. Because the one who has the other people do the work actually spend all their time consuming all the things that come from it. And ultimately, he says very literally, that can produce indigestion. You sit and you consume. And you take in and you take in and take in. While the rest of the people are out there working, you're just consuming. And their sleep at night is sweet because their bodies are ready to rest. You, you have been consuming all day long. And sleep is not sweet for you at this point. But there's another thing going on, a little bit broader understanding of what he's saying. In Scripture, the appetites or or the stomach is a bigger term, is a bigger picture for the things that you want, the things that you desire, the appetites of your soul, the appetites of of your passions. And he's saying that for those who live for affluence, those who who live for wealth, their sleep is never sweet because they're consumed with their passions. And their passions are are never fulfilled. Literally, they're up all night often worrying about all the things that they've managed to consume and what's going to happen to them. Are there people that are going to come and eat them? As we'll see in a few minutes how... How are they going to go away? How can I protect them from leaving? One of the things that you never think about when you don't have what you think you need, when you do actually get it, all of a sudden worry comes in. Worry comes in. With many things comes much worry. And sweet sleep becomes a distant friend for those who are living for affluence and for wealth. And here's one of the funny things as I was thinking about it. Last night, One of the funny things, and it's ironic about all of this in the 21st century, is that our, our desire and our, and our pursuit of more, our desire and our pursuit for affluence and wealth has produced an entire industry that is a billion-dollar industry helping us work off the effects of our already consumptuous lifestyles. The health and fitness and technology industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that is making money, helping people work off the effects of their already consumptuous lifestyles. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Work hard, make money to help people burn off all the consumption and the effects of the consumption from all their working and their privileged lifestyle. Only in the 21st century West. I don't think the rest of the world has that problem. Why else is it vanity to live for affluence? I don't think I've come to your row yet. Verse thirteen. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, Solomon says. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son. But he has nothing in his hand. Another reason why it's vanity to live for affluence and riches it's just here today and gone tomorrow. It never really lasts. If there isn't a relevant passage, a more relevant passage for what many of us and many of you have gone through in the last couple of years, it's got to be this one. He tells a story of a man who has worked hard and stored up and he's stored up for himself. You'll see in the text when you understand what he's saying, to have more for himself, to put away more for himself, to be able to make more. But what happens? He loses it all on a bad business deal. He loses it all on a bad business deal. And Solomon says, to live for affluence, the accumulation of wealth, it's vanity because it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. How many of you knew exactly what was going to happen with the market before it happened? I won't ask how many of you lost a significant amount of money. I won't ask how many of you have lost a significant amount of money on TV infomercials. Either. Oceanfront property in Arizona. (laughs) That's a delayed laugh right there. The map of the U.S. just went up in heads across the room. Oh, yeah, it's no ocean foot property in Arizona. Yeah, bad, bad business deal. All that he had stored up, it was lost. And you know what's worse about it? What's worse about that than the pain and the angst of losing all that wealth he had accumulated? He had a family, he had a wife, and he had kids. You know what makes that so difficult is the presupposition that's in here that Solomon has and this understanding that he has, that it's this man's responsibility to care for, provide for, sacrifice for, and serve his family, his wife, and his kids. But instead, what makes this so hard and so difficult is that his business venture was an effort at serving himself. Solomon presupposes that it's our responsibility, husbands, to care for and serve and provide for our families, our wives, and our kids. This man found himself living and pursuing affluence for the sake of affluence. And it was gone. Like that. And he had kids. He had family. And he had a responsibility. But chasing affluence for the sake of affluence, it's vanity, Solomon said. It's like that toddler we've been talking about for weeks that you see outside with a wand of bubbles, Who blows the bubbles in the wind and then runs around chasing them, trying to think he can catch them all, only to get them in his hand and have them pop as soon as he touches them. That's the picture that Solomon is painting of this. Living for riches, living for affluence. It's like that toddler chasing those bubbles, thinking he can get them. And as soon as you get it and you think that you've got it, it's gone. He's not done, though. Are you ready for him to be done? He's not done. Why else is it vanity to live for affluence? Look at verse 15. It's talking about the same man. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? One day, One day, all of your labor, all of your work, all of your effort, and all of your pursuit will be gone. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. We would all say it's foolish when we watch the Discovery Channel stories of the Egyptian pharaohs who would build these enormous tombs and pyramids, exalting themselves in death, and they would fill those pyramids with the riches of the nation thinking that when they arrived on the other side, they would have those things with them, their pets, their families, their stuff. We would watch it and we would say, foolishness, you can't do that. But yet we live. We live up to the point that we take our very last breath, thinking that those who have the most when they die, win. And we live as though we think we can take it with us, because why else would you continue to consume and consume and consume and to chase and chase and chase up until that point? If you didn't think it would go with you. Solomon says that when you get it, when that penny drops, you can't take it with you. You begin to see that living for it, living for it, it's vanity. It's chasing those bubbles only to have them pop. And when the penny drops, you can begin to ask yourself the right questions. You can begin to look around at your life. You can begin to look around at your surroundings. You can begin to look around at your world. And you can ask and you can say, God, is is this something that you have given to me so that I could use it for your work? Is this something that you have given to me to enjoy for my life, for my family? Or is this something that you have given to me to enjoy by giving it away for your work and for your kingdom? When you get that you can't take it with you, when you get that it's vain for you to live for the acclimation of it, accumulation of it, you can begin to ask yourself the right questions. Why have you given it to me? God, why have you given me this stuff? What do you want me to do with it? He's not done that. He's not done. That's just four reasons why living for affluence is ultimately vanity. He's got more. Verse 17. Moreover, this poor man, all of his days, he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, in anger. I Man, what a picture of the devastating effects of the illusion of living for affluence. What a picture of the devastating consequences of affluenza. Turn it on the TV and you see pictures of all of these people suffering from the diseases that ravage the world. Here is an unbelievably painful picture of a man who has suffered, suffered from the disease of affluenza, from a life lived pursuing the illusion of living for affluence. He's alone in darkness and misery. His soul, his soul, not his mind, his soul is vexed with anxiety and worry. His body is in poor health, and his heart is racked with anger and bitterness Another reason why living for affluence is ultimately vanity, because living that way will go bad for you. I can't say it any any way more plainly, any other way to make it more clear. Living for these things will ultimately go badly for you. It will not end well for you. Here's why. Flip over to chapter 6. He's not done. We'll come back to those other verses. He wants to make sure you get the picture. Are you getting the picture? All right. Well, one person's getting the picture. There are 295 of you. Hopefully, these next two things will help you get the picture. Why else is living for affluence, vanity, and why will it end badly for you? Chapter 6, verse 1, your satisfaction is not ultimately guaranteed. Look at this, verse 1. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun. And it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. See, here's the story, a little picture of a man who had it all, who had everything, yet he couldn't enjoy it. Yet he couldn't enjoy life. One of the things we'll see in a minute is the gifts and the enjoyment are two separate things. The gifts themselves and the enjoyment of them are two very different things. Martin Luther, in writing about this passage, said that this was the story of a wealthy man that lacked nothing for a happy life, yet he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. If that's not a picture, if that's not a picture of the 21st century American, I don't know what it is a people who lack nothing for a happy life, yet we don't have it. We don't have it. And in the end, because the satisfaction can't be found in the gifts, because the enjoyment is a separate thing in and of itself, this man works so hard to accumulate what he's got, to build the life that he's got, and he doesn't even get to enjoy it. In the end, he has to watch someone else enjoy the fruit of all that he's done. How painful. We talked about this weeks ago. How painful is that? For Solomon, it was painful because he was knowing, he knew which son of his was going to assume the wealth and the kingdom that he had built. The most foolish son he had that in 12 years would destroy much of the kingdom that Solomon had built. And before he died, he knew that a fool was going to take over all that he had spent his life pursuing and chasing. He said, it's vanity. To live for that stuff is vanity because your satisfaction is not guaranteed. You can get it all and still not find enjoyment and happiness in it. And if that's the case of all those reasons that Solomon is stacking up story after story, reason after reason for why living for these things is vain, if that doesn't build enough of a case for you, he's going to close it down by saying, you know what, if this is all true, it'd be better off if you weren't even born. If life under the sun is a series of chasing after the accumulation of things. I've had a hard time with that word all morning, haven't I? The accumulation of things only to see that they are taken away. They fall apart. They're lost in deals. and That you don't have any guarantee to enjoy them. If that's the case, it'd be better if you weren't even born at all. Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many. Now, stop right there. That's a picture of what they would see as ultimate blessing. For the Hebrew people, a long life and loads of kids meant blessing. And some of your translations will say this man lived 2,000 years, 1,000 upon 1,000 years. Methuselah, the longest person recorded in the Bible ever living, was 1,000 years. This is just adding, saying, this man could live twice as long as Methuselah, and have loads of kids, a life that exemplified a life blessed, blessed by God. But his soul is not satisfied with life's good thing, with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I would say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it, talking about this child, comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness, its name name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest. Yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. Do you hear what he said? Did you catch the effect of what Solomon was saying? You can have it all. You can live a life that on the outside looks like the best life now. You can live the most blessed life that you could ever imagine. But without the enjoyment of that life, without having true satisfaction in this life, without understanding real meaning and purpose in this life, it would honestly be better off if you had never been born. A stillborn child was better off than you no matter how long you lived. A child who had not seen the things that happened on this earth, who had not suffered under the hands of other men and women on this earth, who had not had to fight the illusions that chase after our hearts and our desires and our souls is better off than you who have it all. We have it all, but no real joy, no real satisfaction, no real meaning, no real purpose. Solomon said, if all you've got is life under the sun, and all that you are living for is the accumulation of stuff, the illusion of affluence, you'd be better off if you'd never been born. This is the story he's painting of a... Man with a dissatisfied soul. Notice he didn't say that there was more stuff he wanted. He wasn't dissatisfied with his possessions. It was his soul that found no enjoyment. It was his soul that lacked a sense of real meaning and real joy. The illusion of Affluence and the illusion of living for those things, the illusion of trying to find meaning and purpose and significance this way, ate this man up from the inside out, and he had a hole in the deepest part of his person. And Solomon said, if that's you, it would be better off. Better off is the child who never had to deal with it at all. He's not done. He may have closed his case for you, but he's not done. Look at verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity. And a striving after the wind. So, if it's vain to live for affluence, and these are the reasons why it's vain to live for affluence, will we ever actually be satisfied, Solomon? Under the sun, left to this world, left to our own best understanding of the life of, around us and, and how to move forward in it, will we ever really be satisfied then? And this is what he says Left to ourselves? No. No. This is the most damning part of the whole thing. Left to ourselves, our hearts and our souls are wanderers, he said. One thing after another, we'll continue to try to pursue finding some sense of real satisfaction and meaning in it. We work, he said, to feed our appetites. But the more we work, the more we want. The more we feed it, the more it grows. Our hearts are a whole lot more like, a, uh, what was that movie or that play? Little Shop of Horrors. Remember? Feed me, Seymour. Feed me. That plant that ate the the blood, the more he would give him, the more he wanted, and the bigger he would grow, and he had to give him more, and he'd get bigger, and he wanted more. Our appetites are a lot like that plant. I wish I knew his name. I don't remember. Some of you probably do. Um, The more we feed him, the more we feed our, our appetites and our desires, the more they grow, and the more we actually want. The funny thing he says here is that this illusion this illusion, this virus, this affluenza, it's not a wealthy person's disease. He said, even the poor, even the poor struggle with the same thing. Because some would think, well, to avoid that, let's just have less and go here. And that's what some of the people who wrote the book that we started out reading would say. The, the answer to the issue is just to simplify. Get rid of stuff. Change legislation. Make it harder to Accumulate. Let's just get rid of things and live simpler. And he said, Well, you know what? The same struggle still affects the poor. He's not better off just because he has less things, because those kinds of things don't get down to the real problem. The real problem is our appetites, our desires, our motivations, our passions. Under the sun, Solomon said, our appetites will always wander, they'll always be wandering. They're not faithful to us. They'll always be unfaithful to what's most satisfying and most important. Augustine. One of the most famous quotes you'll hear from St. Augustine is this. He said, God has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless. Our souls, our appetites, our wanderers, they're restless always wandering, always looking, always chasing, always wanting until, until they find their rest in Him. Our appetites will never be satisfied. Our passions will never be fulfilled. Our search for meaning and significance and purpose will never end until our souls find their rest, find their peace, find their joy, find their contentment, find their satisfaction in Him. That's the answer that Solomon is going to point us to back in those verses that we skipped because the answer that the world will give us, the answer that you and I will quickly jump to, it will never really deal with the real problem. So that book I was telling you about, I read you statistics from, and this is also what they said. With all of this being the case about our nation, with this being the real state of our hearts and the illusion that has gripped us to the degree it has, 85% of people in our country think that our priorities are out of whack. 85% of us think that our priorities are actually out of whack. And 93% think that we're too focused on work and spending money. 91% think we consume more than we need. And more than 50%, this is funny, say we have too much debt. We have a negative savings, but only half of us think we have too much debt. That's funny. I'll have to work on that one. And 87% say that this affluenza, this illusion of living for influence, makes it hard to instill positive values in our kids. (laughs) This coming from the same people that spend and chase meaning in things the way that we do. Makes it right for a good businessman, doesn't it? The answer that the book proposes is simplify, simplify, simplify. Just change your behavior, change your consumption, change your habits. good businessman saw an opportunity, didn't he? He said, if that's what people want and this is what they struggle with, let's start a magazine to help people do it. Did you know that Time Warner had sold 400,000 subscriptions to Real Simple before they ever printed a magazine? Help me get rid of all of this. Let me buy an understanding of that. And 400,000 people bought it before they ever printed it. That's the solution. Solomon said, our hearts, our appetites, they're always going to be unfaithful. They're always going to wander. Until, until they find their contentment, their satisfaction in God. Go backwards a few verses to chapter 5 and go to verse 18. Look at what he says. What's the answer, Solomon? Come on, say something good to me this morning, Solomon. It's rainy. I'm going home alone. Be nice, Solomon. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. The answer, Solomon said, is for our wandering souls, our wandering appetites, our wandering desires, our wandering passions to find their rest in God. In his evaluation of life under the sun, the one thing that was constantly missing from the equation was the role that God played in the whole thing. Solomon intentionally left God out of the picture. And he said, without an understanding of who God is and who we are in in relationship to him, Our appetites are endless and our appetites are wandering and ultimately living for our appetites is vain because it ends in frustration and futility and loss and bitterness and loneliness and anger and we can't take it with us. So what's the point? I wish we had never even been born. But, but, with the right perspective, no longer under the sun, lifting our heads above for a minute, Our souls can find their rest. Our souls can find that joy. Our souls can find that satisfaction and that meaning they so desperately want in the one in whom we were created to find it in. We were created by God to find our joy and satisfaction and meaning in our creator, in a relationship with our creator. And Solomon says this is the gift of God. Verse 19, don't miss what he said. Here's the gift of God. Understanding that God is the one who gives all the things that you have. He gives the gifts. He gives the life that you have, the things that you have. He puts you in the very place in which you live. He is the giver of the gifts. Also, he is the one who then gives contentment in this life. See, it's vanity, Solomon said, to chase all the gifts, thinking that in them you'll find enjoyment. In them, you'll find satisfaction. In them, you'll find meaning. He says, no, 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 here's here's the gift. Here's the thing. You've got to understand that God is the one that gives those things, and then God is the one that also gives contentment in them. As your soul finds contentment in him, as the one who gives you the gifts and who can fulfill the hopes and the dreams and the wants that you're desiring, you'll find that he is the one who gives you the capacity to actually enjoy him. He's the one that actually gives you the capacity to enjoy not only the gifts, but the toil and the lot that you have in this life. He is the one with whom contentment, contentment, Paul would later say, becomes great gain. The cure for affluenza, the cure for the the virus that is eating us apart from the inside out, is satisfaction and contentment in God. Paul will say this centuries later to his protege, Timothy. He said, there is great gain, Timothy, in godliness with contentment. You see, what is, what is affluenza? What is the illusion of pursuing affluence? What is the, the chasing of the wandering appetites of our heart if it's not a soul that has lost contentment with God? I mean, what is it if it's not a soul that has lost a sense of satisfaction and contentment in who God is for us and in who we are in relationship to Him, and therefore we have to go chase that somewhere else. I mean, what is the illusion of living for affluence or the virus the writers talked of of affluenza, if it's not the good old biblical definition of covetousness? And covetousness is nothing other. Don't get too difficult. It's nothing other than a soul that is no longer finding satisfaction and joy and contentment in God, and therefore it has to go look for it somewhere else. That's all it is. And the cure, Solomon says, the cure, Jesus will ultimately say, and the cure, Paul will tell Timothy, is contentment in who God is for us and who we are in relationship with him. A commentator on this passage said, When contentment in God decreases, covetousness for gain increases. And so our illusions are taking over when we're desiring something so much that we lose our contentment in God. Or we lose our contentment in God so that we start to seek it elsewhere. This is what Paul will call idolatry in Colossians. Put to death, he'll say, what's earthly in you. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The illusion of living for Affluence is nothing short of covetousness, which is nothing short of idolatry, because our appetites, our hearts, our souls are seeking their joy and their meaning and satisfaction in something other than God Himself. That is what the root of this problem is, and that is why simply simplifying your life can never change it. Because the problem isn't the stuff, the problem isn't the stuff. The problem is your soul. The problem is your heart. The problem is your appetite. It's looking for what only God can give it in something other than him. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. But where, where there's contentment, Paul said, where there's contentment and satisfaction in who God is for us, there, there is great gain. There is great gain there is great joy. There is great rest. There, in contentment with God, our souls, finally, finally find the peace that they're after. And when our souls, when our souls are satisfied in who God is for us, a number of things begin to happen. When we become satisfied in who God is for us, our hearts Our hearts have the capacity to battle the pride that constantly wants to creep up and tell us that what we have and what we've done and what we do is because of our own capabilities. I've got what I've got because of what I've done, not that all that we have is a gift from God. Contentment, contentment, begins to do battle with the pride that is so quick to spring up in our hearts. Contentment, in God for who he is, keeps us from, from making the gifts that God has given us something more than he desired for them. When we're content and satisfied in God and who he is for us, the things that he brings into our life, they're just the gifts that he's given us and we can ask ourselves, what do you want me to do with them? We can work hard to honor him, to do the things he's called us to do, to to use our wisdom, to use the intelligence, to use the breath that he's given us, to do the work that he's called us to do. And when you do that, oftentimes good things begin to happen. You might get raises. You might actually do well. But when your soul, your soul is satisfied by God, the things that he brings into your life come with a proper perspective. It battles the pride that you think you brought them in with and it battles the, battles the covetousness and it battles the lie that these things are where the satisfaction is found. Contentment is a powerful, powerful, powerful thing. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to call you to respond in a few ways. You respond to Scripture every week in a series of ways, but I want to explain them to you this week. I want to explain them to you and how they relate to what Solomon's saying this morning. The first thing I'm going to call you to do when I stop talking is to reflect. To reflect on the case that Solomon has built in this section of Ecclesiastes and to repent. To begin to repent of all the places, of all the things that your appetite has wandered toward of all the places and all the things that you're seeking, the kind of satisfaction and joy and meaning that can only come from contentment in God. Repent of the illusions of living for affluence. I want you to ask yourself, where do you see? Where do you see this virus? Where do you see this affluenza eating away at your heart? You know where it is. I don't. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Where do you see it? eating away at your heart. And I want you to repent. And I want you to take hold of the Bible. I want you to take hold of the Word of God. I want you to go to places like, like Psalm 119. And I want you to cry out like David did. When he said, Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to worldly gain. I want you to pray to God. I want you to pray that prayer to God recognize where it's eating you up and go to God and say, change my heart, change my taste buds. Lord, I want to be content in you. Help me to see where I'm not. Help me to see what it is about you that I fail to trust and fail to find satisfying. God, change my taste buds. Change the taste buds of my soul. Lord, do battle. Do battle in my heart. Lord, I want to find joy. I want you to reflect and I want you to begin to repent. I want you to be able to say with Paul that godliness with contentment is great gain. Say to your soul, there's great gain in contentment with God. There's great gain in satisfaction with God. There's great gain in being satisfied in who God is for you. Do battle. Do battle with the places of dissatisfaction in your soul. And when you leave, continue to do battle. When you recognize there's a place in your heart and a place in your mind where you're beginning to pursue something, where you're beginning to live under this illusion of living for affluence or anything else, I want you to do battle and I want you to take this text and say there's great gain in God. There is great gain in being content with God. And do battle with whatever thought or temptation is coming into your heart. That's the first way I want to call you to respond. The second thing I want you to do, we're going to do together as a people, we do it every single week, and that's as we take communion, remembering the the body of Jesus Christ broken on our behalf, the blood of his body poured out to cover the life that we live chasing after the illusions, to pay the price for the life that we live chasing after something other than God to satisfy us. And then you're going to give. Give as a people, if this is your home, we're going to call you to respond as we take communion to give of your tithes and your offerings. You know, that is a powerful, powerful way that God has wired our Christian life to functionally do battle with the covetousness and the idolatry that consumes our heart. When we understand that he is the one who owns everything and everything that he gives to us is by his grace and It's a gift to us. And we're to ask him, what are we to do with it? Giving back to him what he has asked of us for the purpose of forwarding his work on this earth becomes a great joy. And it loosens our grip on the things around us. It loosens the grip that we hold the things in our world so tightly with. And so if this is your home, and this is the place that you have given yourself, we're going to ask that when we respond by taking communion, that you give. And then we're going to respond together corporately by singing. We're going to sing. We're going to sing with David and we're going to sing that it's joy. There's fullness of joy in the presence of God and the soul content with God. We're going to sing with David and say that I will go to God. I will go to God, my Savior. I will go to God, my refuge. I will go to God my exceeding joy, my exceeding joy. We're going to sing that going to God is an exceeding joy. So let me pray for you, and then pray for all of us, and then I'm going to ask us to respond together. God, your words through Solomon are hard. And they're difficult for our souls, our sinful souls, to surrender to. Lord, we ask that your spirit and your grace lay an axe to the root of this thing. Lord, my heart is so easily illusioned by the things of the world, Lord. I I so easily chase chase after affluence. I find myself so easily living for it rather than enjoying with contentment what you've given me in this life. Rather than feeling grateful and contented with you, rather than seeking after you, rather than pursuing you, I so easily pursue other things. God, we ask that you just rearrange the appetites of our soul rearrange the passions of our heart. What, Lord, what could honor you more? I mean, what could honor you more and bring you more glory than to acknowledge that in you, in you is fullness of joy? What could honor you more than to running to you and acknowledgement that in your presence is fullness of joy? So we ask that you do that in our hearts this morning. Lord, heal the places in our souls where the affluence of viruses eaten us alive, and help us learn to find our satisfaction and joy in You, and to do battle with that thing as often as possible. Lord, we ask this that You would be glorified in our lives, that Your name would be made great, and that people would see a community of people whose lives are satisfied in You are satisfied in you. Amen.